how parents can best develop their children to be great learners. It's the subject of our conversation today. Our guest is John Hattie, who with his son, Kyle Hattie, also an educator, has authored a book setting out 10 steps for encouraging curiosity and intellectual ambition, which start with the parent demonstrating to their child an openness to new ideas and thinking. John Hattie is Emeritus Laureate Professor at the Graduate School of Education at the University of Melbourne, whose previous books have been translated into 29 languages, while his son Kyle is a year six teacher working in a primary school in the northern suburbs of Melbourne and has also taught in New Zealand. John Hattie, welcome back to Nine to Noon. Always good to talk to you. It's great to be back. It really is. Now, it's one of the big worries for many parents, which is how they can do their best to help their child achieve most in school and in life. What is the basic premise of your book? Well, as we discovered during the COVID lockdowns, parents got a really good insight as to how their students learned, probably better than we've ever seen ever before. Even though we all as parents went to school ourselves, we've forgotten that learning is a struggle, that failure and errors are not embarrassments, they're opportunities to learn. So one of the big themes throughout the book is that we've got to stop thinking of parents as first teachers. That mixes up their role with teachers, and I'm sure many parents during COVID realised that they weren't actually very good teachers at all. But my goodness, they have to be the first learners. They have to be showing the students what learning means, how to react to error and mistakes, how to recover, and all the necessary skills that you know, we, we desire in our students and our, and, our, and our children. At the outset of the book, you list 10 statements, I presume, that any parent could make for themselves that will help guide them. They outline some key characteristics, and what are they? Well, the, the, the fundamental argument is we, we don't want to talk about what parents do. Um, two parents can do the same thing, but the effect can be quite different. We want to focus on how parents think about what they do. Like what, one of the big mind frames and steps is what expectations you have for your students. Uh, are you responsive? Do you lack, are you really good as a listener? As, as parents, we often like to tell our kids. But are we good at listening as well? Because that's the skill we want our students, our kids to know, is to be good listeners. So do we emulate that as well? Do we actually check that our feedback we give to kids is heard, understood, and actioned by the, by the kids? And so we go through 10 of these major steps to look at what the evidence is about this, uh, give examples, give stories, and that's where Kyle has really made a, a big contribution to the book about ordinary everyday situations where you can take those opportunities to demonstrate to your child that you are the best learner. Let's talk about a couple of the basics. I love learning. This is the parent speaking to him or herself, themselves. Uh, I love learning. Now, often we project, and sometimes, John, there's an issue with teachers lacking some confidence in certain areas of the curriculum who project negativity about learning. Is the most important thing you project, including the failures in the, in, in the stuff you muck up, a love of it? Oh, one of um, the major themes that come across my work on schools is that passion is the vital ingredient. It's no different with parents. And probably the, the joke here is that it, it, it's hard to measure. But, oh, my gosh, it's easy to see. 
and kids are very good detectors of passion. And like some parents are quite proud of the fact that they say, oh, I don't like maths, for example. We didn't do very good at it. Well, if that's not a very powerful message to students to not also care about it, I think you can be passionate about the struggles in a subject like maths or science or whatever subject is that you didn't like yourself and talking about how you overcame them, what you did about it and communicate that message to your students. That it's, you don't have to love everything, kid. But, oh, my goodness. There are strategies that you need to develop to deal with that lack of passion. And one would hope it's New Zealand's a very good example here where our curriculum isn't a million miles wide and an inch deep. But it is an opportunity where we can go down deep into some subjects. And again, during COVID, some of our students really, really delve deeply into some subjects. And that's what turns them on. And I bet if you go back and look at your own years when you were schooling, it's learning something in more depth that you like rather than learn the thousand facts um, to sound like a, a you know, pub, test, pub test. So that way in which you as a parent can engage in an activity with, your, with your, your children, dive deeply into it, show them that you make mistakes, how you recover from it, um, is, is the key of what we're saying is one is a great, great parent. We need to keep going on this question of failure and how fundamental yeah. it is to successful learning because you will often get feedback again from within the educators uh, and their experiences. Uh, and this is certainly speaks to Carol Dweck's work, right? That yes. a ch- if a child is trying to be perfect, if a child is told they're really good at something, they don't want to tolerate the failure because the perception and the reflection of that means, well, I'm not going to try as hard or I might cheat on something because I'm supposed to get 10 out of 10 on this test. It's really important to not make perfection the goal, but to um, make the work of learning the goal, and that includes some failure. Oh, look, if, um, you know, one of my fascinations with, for example, gifted students is why is it gifted students really become gifted adults? Less than 2% of child prodigies go on to be gifted adults. And the argument for that is they never learn to fail. And if you're getting 100% on a test, well, surely the test is too easy. Um, and you're right, it's that perfectionism, which some parents more than foster, is a disaster for kids. Like you don't go to school to learn the stuff that you already know. It's what you don't know. So we really have to find ways to allow error as opportunities. Like it's a good example when you go into many classrooms and a kid puts their hand up and answer a question and gives a wrong answer. 50% of the time, the teacher corrects that kid. Up to 50% of the time, the teacher asks another kid to correct that kid. Less than 3% of the time, the, child, the teacher uses that error as an opportunity to learn. Now, we know why we do that. We don't want to affect the kid's self-esteem. But on the other hand, think of the message we're saying to that kid. If you don't know, you're a dummy. Well, that's where parents can have a dramatic influence. When the kid doesn't know at home, Treat it as an opportunity to learn. Treat it as an opportunity to say, well, let's work out what happened there and how you came to that particular solution. And when parents make mistakes, treat it as an opportunity to relearn. How do they recover? How do they have coping strategies and knowing strategies? Uh, this is, as you say, this is really key if you want your child to be a learner because every single time in every class on every day, there are things kids don't know. That has to be an opportunity, not an embarrassment. What do you mean when you talk about the language of learning? Well, let me ask you a question. How do you learn it? 
How do I learn? Yeah. <laughs> God, John. Um, that's hard. Two and a half hours into a three-hour session. Um, I learn by reading. I learn by listening. I learn by reflecting. I learn by critical analysis of the source of the information I'm getting. Um, I learn mainly by probably being interested in whatever it is I'm trying to learn and not so well when I'm not interested. How's that for starters? Well, firstly, your, your initial reaction, I think, is, is, is always fascinating, that we as adults, we are in the business of educating, you know, both you and I are. We struggle sometimes to come up with an answer to that question. And then the other part of the answer you gave was you have multiple ways of learning. Many students, many kids don't. They have one way, and when that way doesn't work, they use it again, and then they wonder why they can't learn. And it's really interesting. We went through 20,000 hours of transcripts of classrooms to find an example of a, an, an occasion when a student was asked to think aloud about how they solved a problem, when a parent thought, sorry, when a teacher thought aloud about how they solved that problem, or where the teachers deliberately taught a different strategy than the one the kid used. And in 20,000 hours, we found zero. Now, my, our question in our book is, this is where home can make a dramatic difference. Listen to your child about how they solve the problems. Create a language about learning. Talk about errors. Talk about mistakes. And it's like my boys were, went through secondary school in New Zealand, and every night at the dinner table, they were never asked, what did you do at school today? That's the evil question. They were asked, what feedback did your teacher give, give you today? And it was trying to get them to at least once a day to listen to the teacher so they could shut me up at the dinner table, but to get them to realise that it was about that language of learning that is so much critical. And parents can have a dramatic play in that. And to get away from the what questions that lead to answers about the subject and the topic and have much more questions about the language of learning. Um, when your child makes an error, treat it as an opportunity to talk about it. Um, and it's particularly in the early childhood eras, years, but between the ages of five, it's all about language, 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 language. Sadly, some homes don't have much language. And that's a real serious problem when the child starts school. Just talk, listen, and, have that, and if you, you can have that language about learning, it's a double, double bonus. You also talk about I am not alone and uh, of course there's the famous saying the child is brought up in a village. This podcast, when it's made into a podcast, is called It Takes a Village. You make the point it's now a huge village. Uh, children and young people today are locked into global connections. Um, and what is the power of others, the influence of others, be it in real life or, or be it online? And, and could you speak to a couple of different age uh, cohorts as well. Oh, and like New Zealand has the fortunate concept of whānau, and I think that's the kind of village that um, we want our students to be brought up in. It's more than just the family unit. And as we say, with social media now, even very young children have access to the world in many ways. And obviously there are bad parts of that, and there are good parts of that. The hardcore reality is we as parents have to recognise that's the world they're living in. And denial isn't just a river in Egypt, it is not a very good strategy. And all those notions about banning this and that, um, sooner or later, they're going to have access to that world. So we need to worry about how we're going to teach them and how to evaluate what information they can believe on, sources and, and sites that they can work on and not. And I think this is really part of where the, the parent role becomes 
much, much more critical than the school role about what those boundaries are and how you have conversations with others, particularly with others who don't agree with you. Uh, that's part of being born up and that's part of being reflected in the family life. Like if you don't allow your child ever to disagree with you, then what do you think they're going to do when they meet someone that disagrees with them? And so how do you, again, build up that language of learning? But that social world now is very much part of their life, and I think it's how we actually manage it. I remember being brought up in New Zealand many, many years ago, and the, the most evil thing that ever happened is when we switched from pencil to fountain pen, and the biro came into the world. And it was banned in schools at that time. Now, we look back at that at almost laughter. Well, same with social media. It, it's not an opportunity we should deny. It's an opportunity how we learn by it. And here's the other fascination. Kids are more likely to talk on social media about what they can't do and the areas of mistakes than they are if they're standing right next to you. So what an incredible opportunity to maximise social media. You also talk about uh, the, the theory... Um the theory of mind, right? And this is about, this goes back to the early stages of, of, a, of a child's development as well, that the importance of very young children building their theory of the world yes. informs their interactions with you, with the kids around them, with their siblings, and ultimately with educators. What is so important about building that theory of their world and, and does that also keep evolving over time or is it those early years that it's particularly important? Well, yes, it's particularly important in every year but those early years, like I'm at the luxurious stage of my life now, I have grandchildren and I have um, two, three-year-olds at the moment and they are well in that period now of the why questions. You know, why is it like that? Um, and trying to understand and it's the, you know, why is the essence of curiosity and the, the, one, one of the important messages is that you must engage with your students, your kids, particularly around the ages of three, four or five, as they're building that understanding of the world around them so they can fit things in, they can better understand. And the travesty is some kids don't get that opportunity. No one talks to them. Some parents talk to their dogs more than their kids. This is what we have to turn around and say, engage with the kids. Don't turn them off. Now, here's the bad news. Once they start school, it turns to what questions? What is the answer to this? What is going on? And I think this is a real serious problem we have that we really do depress a lot of the curiosity as they grow older. And so no matter what your age of your kid is, whether they be teenagers, whatever, engaging in every time you hear a why question, your eyes should light up and say, well, what an incredible opportunity to be with my kids, think aloud with them, treat them like they're almost equals in the sense that both of us are curious about these things. And that curiosity turns into passion, it turns into motivation, it turns into wanting to know things. So we see that as a, a really aspect that should be fostered at every age group. But those you, you, like teachers know at age five which kids haven't gone through a really good opportunity to understand the world around them. They tend to be mute, they tend to not be engaged, they tend to not know a hang of a lot about their world, they don't know where they fit in. Those three to five, between three and five, the answer is, Language, 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 language. 
question here that will be on the minds of many parents with the interruptions to schooling of the last two years, I'm sure. This one, I am a 14, I have a 14-year-old boy who is very capable but disengaged in his schooling and sees no relevance for his life. How can we encourage him in a productive way without nagging? We just want him to reach his potential and feel fulfilled. Look, I've never met a 14-year-old yet who is not incredibly motivated. They have incredible motivation and resources. The issue is they don't want to be motivated to schoolwork. And so it's turning those motivational resources of that 14-year-old, probably who's keen on these video games or sport or whatever his passion is, how can you use that as an opportunity to redirect them back into learning? And like playing some of those video games is you know, quite an intellectual activity. May not seem that to some parents, but it does require a lot of skill. And so what are the skills they're learning there? And how can they see in the same way, using those skills to master some of their materials? Now, again, at age 14, you're asked to cover an incredibly wide curriculum. And at that age, kids are making decisions about where their passion is. And obviously, with the questioner, they're not choosing many at all in the school. So they can they find one subject at the school that the parent can work with them, be engaged, science, go to a science museum, history, to, to another scenario, how can they engage them to engage them in that one passion so they can turn their motivational resources to that? Don't try to do everything, particularly at age 14. That's what turns kids off. They're not expert at everything. But how do you actually take one of the subjects and just engage in those kind of activities at home? There's a chapter here that so many teachers will identify with, but my goodness, it's important not just for the teacher's sanity, but actually for a child's education, that if you recognise this behaviour in yourself, you uh, um, uh, adapt it. We know the helicopter parent, um, the jet fighter parents, and a new one to me, waiting in the wings, but ready to sweep in to save their precious ones at the slightest sign of trouble or stress <laughs> for the child. We know the snowplough uh, parent, um, the magic bullet parent, what's the secret you've been hiding in your bottom trawl to make, make their, their child brilliant? Um, the, the bonsai one was interesting to me wants a perfectly controlled environment and continues to tweak the environment to move the child ever more towards perfection and then the social media parent who doesn't care what time of day or night they bombard the teacher uh, yes that might put a wry smile on the faces of the teachers listening but why is it so important that you get your uh, address these behaviours if they are very prominent? What's the impact that some of them or all of them are having on your child's learning? Well, sooner or later, your child is going to have to stand on their own two feet. And some parents want it to be later and later and later. And therein lies the dilemma. Sometimes you've just got to trust your child. And as we were commenting earlier, when they do make mistakes and errors, Get them and teach them how to react to them first before you rush in to solve it. Now, I've, I've been guilty of this too in terms of my own kids rushing in to solve the problems. And you think, what are they learning from that? Well, they're not learning the right things we want them to do, particularly when they are by themselves. Now, even at the ages of three, four, and five, um, you, you, you mentioned Carol Dweck before. One of the best studies she ever did, in my opinion, was she looked at parents with three-year-olds and they were building blocks, whatever. And when the kid made a mistake, if the parents stepped in to fix the mistake, that was one of the best predictors of not being a learner at age 14, 15. And so that long-term effect that you have of 
in, in the jargon, releasing responsibility. And it, sometimes it's a gradual release, sometimes it's a very specific release. But many of those descriptors you read out are overzealously protecting the child, doing the work for the kid. And I think that's, that is not the message that we want our children to learn. They have to know they're going to stand on their own two feet. So uh, the word gradual is pretty critical there. You don't want to do it suddenly. It's a gradual release of responsibility. John, thanks as always. John Hattie, who with Kyle, his son Kyle Hattie, has co-authored 10 Steps to Develop Great Learners, Visible Learning for Parents.